Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care. It's my monthly podcast, and we're going to talk about payment reform. I have with me today an, an old friend, actually, uh, Suzanne Del Banco, who is the executive director of the Catalyst for Payment Reform. And Suzanne, I always thought it was very clever to have your initials be CPR because certainly our healthcare system needs some CPR. And uh, the Catalyst for Payment Reform is an independent nonprofit corporation that's working to catalyze employers, public purchasers, and any other stakeholder that's involved in implementing strategy to really get higher value health care and improve the functioning of our healthcare marketplaces, which also badly need it. So uh, Suzanne has led CPR and its commitment to help employers and purchasers send a clear signal to the market about the need for higher quality and lower cost health care. So Suzanne, um, Let's start out by having you tell our listeners what, what do they really need to know about payment reform? What's wrong with our current method of just paying for services, uh, you know, the infamous fee-for-service way of paying? It's always a good question because it's not a simple answer. Um, what I will say is that the way we've traditionally paid for healthcare in the United States is in a piecemeal fashion. So fee-for-service basically means for every unit of service the healthcare system provides to a patient whether it's an office visit or a diagnostic test uh, or a procedure or an inpatient hospital stay, we're, we're charged uh, sort of a la carte. Like if you go into a restaurant and you have to order things a la carte as opposed to a prefix menu where, you know, you're getting appetizer, main course, dessert, all for one price. And while it's good in some ways to pay for each unit of service because it's the transactions are pretty clear. Everyone knows sort of what happened based on the claims maybe that get paid. Um, it is, many argue, inherently inflationary because if for, health, if for healthcare providers to make money, they need to provide a certain number of services. And the more they do, the more they get paid. And the more expensive services, the more they get paid. Then the incentives that we're sending to healthcare providers, even though, of course, most of them went into their professions to make people's lives better, you know, is that basically if you want to earn a decent living, you got to do more. And really what we want as, uh, you know, when we're patients or if we're employers who are filling the bill, is we want high value care. We want the right care delivered at the right time in the right way to the right patient, um, all as efficiently and affordably as possible. So that's what's wrong with the way we were paying. Now, uh, I don't want to go on for too long, so I'll just say that things look pretty different today. Um, but let me see if you have any follow-up questions before I go into that. Well, no, I just want to point out that what, what you just said um, is is well documented in the literature that we know that when uh, a provider or a group of providers uh, has a uh, high-cost uh, procedure that they do, um, that they can really control the demand of that procedure. And you can see areas of the country where there's lots more being done um, in a certain area, for example, bypass surgery or spine surgery or, you know, some other high-cost uh, procedure than it would be in, in, in other parts of the country and certainly than in other parts of the world. So we, we know that this system of fee-for-service has led to uh, over-utilization. And utilization kind of implies that the patient's driving it, but in this case, it's really being driven by the, by, by the providers. 
Right. And, and the thing that's interesting is because you asked, you know, sort of what's wrong with our current method of paying for, for services. When CPR got started in 2010, and we asked the big health plans just informally, you know, out of all the payments you're making to doctors and hospitals right now, what proportion pay any attention whatsoever to the quality of care? We were told it was somewhere between 1% and 3%. Well, in 2017, we're probably closer to 50%. So while almost all of the payment reform that's happening is still based on the fee-for-service chassis, if you will, um, we have a lot of bells and whistles and different kinds of incentives now that have been layered on top of it to try to correct for some of the perverse incentives inherent in it. Can you give me some examples? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing we all experienced, for those of us who've been in healthcare for a while, was pay for performance. So this idea that if providers perform well on certain quality metrics or other kinds of performance measures, they might stand to get a bonus, you know, at the end of some kind of uh, reporting period. And that was relatively easy to implement. Um, Not easy because obviously collecting quality information and um, making it available to people is not a small task. But from a payment perspective, it was pretty easy. And really what we've seen since then is, you know, since the sort of call to action that the Affordable Care Act led to because it really created a blueprint for payment reform for Medicare and the commercial sector thought, gosh, we, you know, we better figure out what we're going to do. And then of course, when CPR got formed and we represent very large purchasers of healthcare and we started pushing for more payment reform, um, the quick reaction was to do a lot more pay for performance because that's what people knew how to do. But since then, really where we've seen the action most is in what's called shared savings, which is this payment arrangement where there's still some quality metrics being added on to the fee-for-service payments. But ultimately, if those quality metrics are, um, if the standards for those are met, and if the providers beat a budget that's been set for them, they get to share in some of the savings. So this is where we're trying to create not just a quality incentive, but also an incentive to be more efficient and to reduce waste. And so shared savings is really making up the bulk of the rest of payment reform that we're seeing. There's other ones I can get into too, but that, that's really where the bulk of energy is today. Well, that's very interesting because a number of years ago, I went to work for what I'll tell you is an unnamed health plan that had a shared savings model. Uh, But the problem was that they were stronger on the shared savings than they were on having the bar that has to meet the quality metrics in order to share the savings. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, what plans or provider groups have to do to make sure that, uh, that you actually do meet those quality metrics before you're able to share in the savings? Because otherwise, you could see you could create a perverse incentive on the other side. Right. Everyone remembers, you know, the fear of capitation is that if you set a, a certain amount per patient for a given period of time, then providers are going to want to withhold care because that's how they can make more money. Um, so this is trying to, you know, maybe take a step forward from that and say, all right, we better have some checks and balances here for quality. So, you know, the the tricky thing with quality is that there's so many different measures out there and um, different measures are important to different stakeholders. And there really is still not much standardization when it comes to which quality metrics are used in various shared savings arrangements or even pay for performance programs. Um, California is an exception because there's been effort by multiple stakeholders to really line things up even across payers. 
But in most places, it's really piecemeal. So it becomes a negotiation between the payer and the provider. Uh, you know, what, what quality metrics are we going to hold you accountable for? Um, that doesn't make my constituency very happy, employers, because they want these measures to really be meaningful. Um, they want them to be the ones that they're most concerned about. And instead, they're often the ones that are easiest to measure or the ones where providers are pretty confident that they're going to perform well. Sure. And then there's also the downside of you have a, a series of measurements and that's, at, and I'm going to get rewarded if I do well on those measurements. So that's what I do, even though there's no way those measurements can actually capture everything that's important, right? right. So if you're measuring right. my asthma outcomes and you're not measuring my diabetes outcomes, which of course is, you know, a made up example, but if you do that, I'm going to manage my asthmatics perfectly and I may pay less attention to my diabetics. What, what kinds of things are you doing to, you know, trying and trying to avoid that managing to the, to the test result? It's a great question. So, you know, there's only so much a small nonprofit like mine can do, but we have done a couple things that touch on this directly. A couple of years ago, we put out a set of uh, performance measures, a set of 30 in total that we basically put out there to let other stakeholders know that this is what employers really want to know about. We selected those measures based on the areas where employers are spending the most on healthcare and where we know there's the greatest variation in quality and price. So in other words, there's lots of money being forked over to providers in these given areas like asthma and diabetes, but we know that the guidelines aren't being adhered to well across the board. And we also know that depending on the provider's negotiating strength, they're charging wildly different amounts. So that basically, if you're the payer, um, you know that you're not getting a good deal a lot of the time because either you're getting an unreliable product, you know, because the quality varies, or you're paying highly competitive prices. Um, maybe in some cases you'll pay lower than competitive prices, but um, we basically said these are the areas where we know there's the greatest um, uh, variation, the lack of reliability that, that employers want from the healthcare system. So these are the quality measures we want people to focus on. We've since updated our work a little bit for the context of ACOs, specifically accountable care organizations. Given that the accountable care uh, organization movement seems to continue to be growing, and not just for Medicare, but also in the commercial sector, um, employers have been finding that there's really no consistency in the measures that they use and, uh, and, and really a lack of transparency from the payer to the employer around what's being measured, what's... Um, uh, required of the provider in terms of their performance in order to share in savings, et cetera. So we actually just put out a template report that we're hoping health plans, uh, carriers, payers, whatever you like to call those entities that are contracting directly with the providers will use to share with their paying customers how they uh, these arrangements are faring. Um, so, by creating a standard set of metrics, and we've created a, a report that looks a lot like the nutrition label, you know, to make it very familiar and really hopefully an industry standard, we're hoping that we can um, help providers focus in on what employers feel is really important. And we also worked hard to select measures that we thought could be very strong indicators of performance generally. So going back to your original question, I'm sorry if it's been too long-winded, um, when you asked how do you make sure you're measuring the right thing and, and not just measuring certain things but other things get neglected, we really tried to look holistically and say if we have this 
set of measures working together, we feel like we're going to have a good sense about whether this group of providers who are calling themselves an ACO is really fulfilling the promise of an ACO. All right, I'll stop talking there and, and see if I've answered well, that's a perfect. Right. That's a perfect place because what I want to talk about is, you know, we spent a lot of time over the last number of years focused on uh, insurance reform, right? Who gets covered, all, yes. all the kinds of stuff that we've done and, and, and the kind of unraveling of the Affordable Care Act or the seeming unraveling of the Affordable Care Act. But where we really need to get is to delivery system reform. So we need payment reform, but we need delivery system reform. And you talked about accountable care organizations. And I know when they first started, a lot of us were hopeful. Wow, this is just such a good idea that's going to go faster. We're going to have all these ACOs all over the country. But it's been painfully slow. And, um, and the fact that we have so many different ones, and even though you're trying to make measures the same, everything is... All these things are so different and they put a huge burden on the providers. So my question to you is, are accountable care organizations really the answer to our cost and quality problem or, or is there something better out there? You know, a lot of docs are saying, you know, I need to spend time with my patients. I'm going to go into a concierge practice and that's the way I'm going to get to quality care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sadly, there is no one size fits all solution here. Um, it's incredibly important in our view to pay attention to local market dynamics and what makes sense in that context. So one of the things that employers were really worried about with accountable care organizations from the get-go is, is this going to just lead to more provider consolidation? And by consolidation, I mean mergers, acquisitions, health systems, buying physician practices, because uh, sadly, as the evidence has mounted in, in taller and taller piles, we are seeing that consolidation inevitably leads to higher prices, and there is no evidence that it improves quality. So, you know, providers are extremely serious about changing the way they deliver care and really trying to coordinate care and provide a continuous experience for the patient. There's no question that an accountable care model could be revolutionary and really make the patient at the center of the healthcare system where the patient deserves to be. But if you get a whole bunch of providers saying, hey, you know, let's, let's uh, take some Band-Aids and attach ourselves and call ourselves an ACO, and then when we've amassed the market power, we can charge higher prices, you know, good for us. You know, that's, that's not getting us where we want to get. And, and as people keep saying, you know, you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO. So there's every range of ACO out there. And so to say, is it the answer? Is it not the answer? Should we be looking somewhere else? There's just no simple you know, diagnosis for this problem. I think the ACO movement's been really great and and helping people think about the big picture. Um, but it's way too early to conclude that it works or it doesn't work. And more importantly, to include about what context it seems to work in or what kind of characteristics the participants have to have. Um, and you know, is there something better out there? There's no, there's no other silver bullet. I mean, for people who are wealthy who can have a concierge practice, take care of them, great for them, but that's not a solution across the board to making healthcare, you know, more accessible and affordable for the U.S. population. So I'm going to bring up an issue that some people might think is controversial. You mentioned, and I've seen it, you've seen it, um, that it is all about the leverage, and the leverage dynamics change depending on the marketplace. And we've made it so complicated because we have so many different kinds of delivery systems. We have, I worked once for a small health plan that had no leverage and they would go into a community where there was a single hospital that 
you know, had all the power and they wouldn't be able to even have nurses go in to do concurrent review because the hospital said, no, I'm not doing that. Uh Do we need to simplify the entire um, healthcare system in the U.S.? And by that, I mean having maybe three major stakeholders who, who can hopefully end up with more or less even um, power or leverage have a single payer, have, um, you know, uh, fewer, fewer variations on a theme of the delivery system, maybe have large provider groups. Because in actual fact, if you look at organizations like Geisinger and, and Kaiser Permanente, you know, medicine is really a team sport. And so having docs who all are aligned in one large group is not a bad thing in terms of the delivery, the actual delivery of the, of the care processes. Um, what do you think about that? There are people we keep, we keep getting up close to talking about single payer and then backing up. Do you, do you think actually a single payer system would be easier and perhaps eliminate the, this, this one will be tricky for you, Suzanne, because of who your constituency is, but eliminating the stakeholder group of the large payer there's two levels of answers to this question. So one is, is this politically feasible in this country? And I have yet to see any evidence that it is. I don't know how much energy I would put into trying to design this because I just don't know politically if it's feasible. Um, secondly, you know, you could create a monster. You know, this whole too big to fail concept that we learned about in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, what if we end up with three horribly bad actors? I don't think we want to put ourselves in a situation where there's no competition and no drive for innovation um, unless we really felt as a country that we could share our values. And I don't think that we're quite there. I I will never forget the opportunity I had to go over to uh, England and meet with Tony Blair's advisor and talk about what they should do around capacity issues that they were having with their national health system. And the conversation, it was like being on a foreign planet because the words fairness and equity were constantly used on their, on their side. And it made me realize that as a country, we don't really share values around our healthcare. We think it's about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. We don't really have a common cause. And so I just, I just think we'd have a very hard time choosing these few players and making sure that they behave themselves well. So in the meantime, we have a healthcare system with lots of special interests. Um, and the one thing I can say about the employer is at least they're there looking out for their populations right now in the midst of all that special interest. Um, and so I think they play an incredibly important role right now, and I wouldn't want to remove them until we got to a place where we could be really certain uh, that we were all on the same page and pushing for the same thing. And I, I'm just not convinced politically that we could get there. Well, uh, excellent answer. Um, I've had I've had a similar experience of uh, being on a panel um, talking about drugs and the way they're covered for Alzheimer's disease, for example, and having the U.S. with our complex system of how we decide what gets paid for and what what doesn't, and having all the Europeans on the panel say. We pay for it if it works. <laughs> you know, just yeah. very, yeah. very, very different. Uh, yeah. So I want to take a little bit of a left turn because I know that um, although CPR was uh, founded really to focus on the important issue of payment reform, um, your work has actually expanded. Can you tell us what else you're doing uh, besides the work, the, the very important work that you're doing on payment reform? 
Well, I mean, this is actually kind of a funny story because the expansion happened almost immediately. Because when you look at a complex problem like how to improve value in healthcare, if you only push one lever, and in our case, the focus, of course, initially was on changing how we pay doctors and hospitals, trying to create an environment that's more conducive to better value uh, by changing how we pay, um, then you start thinking about, well, wait a minute, I have to align a lot of different incentives here. We have to make sure that the consumer or the patient um, has the same kind of motivations or motivations that will work in concert with a provider. Um, we have to think about what to do about really poor performing providers or extremely expensive providers and, and how we can either eliminate uh, contracting with them or, uh, you know, create some strong incentives for them to improve. And then as we tinker with payment reform or benefit design or provider network design, you just raised an example of a small health plan with a little power, you know, going into a community with one hospital. Um, if we ignore provider consolidation and market power, then it's like, you know, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic while a tsunami is about to hit us. And that tsunami is this shift in the balance of power that's rapidly moving toward the provider right now. And so the amount of, you know, better value we could squeeze out of payment reform if we don't think about all these levers together and all these environmental challenges um, then we're going to be, you know, sort of tinkering away, you know, completely unaware at what we're about to get hit with. So we've, we've really had to, by definition, get into all these areas because they really interconnect. And what are some of the key initiatives that you're doing? What are the two or three most important things that you're working on right now? Well, I love that question um, because we're trying to do a lot of different things, but there's a common theme so we've always, as our name Catalyst suggests, pushed for experimentation. We don't think we have the answers. We don't think anybody has the answers. So let's keep experimenting and learning so that we can figure out what works in what context. What we're finding we're really falling short on, all of us across the healthcare system, is careful evaluation. Um, we're not seeing a lot of um, rigorous evaluation or sharing of results that allows the healthcare system to be learning and to be iterating and improving. So we put out a payment reform evaluation framework a couple of years ago to help people think about what employers want to know about a payment or delivery reform program. And as I was mentioning a moment ago, we've been doing some work around accountable care and uh, trying to create an industry standard for how health plans report to their employer customers about how their ACO arrangements are performing. Um, so this theme around tell us how it's working so we can work with you to try to help improve things or we can decide, you know what, this strategy is not for us. So really trying to, you know, enhance transparency around uh, the performance of the healthcare system for the employer and ultimately for the individual patient or consumer is, is really at, at top of mind. And we get to this work by doing things like small work groups of employers who have a common challenge. We call them collaboratives where they come together to try to solve a problem. So that's where our standard ACO report came from. It was a group of seven purchasers working together. Um, and we're trying to tackle other issues like mental health services because, believe it or not, that's an area where uh, employers are seeing their expenditures really rising and feeling like they don't have a good handle on how to get good value out of the healthcare system. Um, we're even getting into more outlandish topics like genetic testing and screening and substance use disorder because these are the areas where employers are seeing their expenses rise and feeling like they don't have a good 
um, handle on the best way to um, interact with the healthcare system to make sure they can meet the needs of their population in a way that's high quality and affordable. So we get into a whole variety of things. We spend, you know, two-thirds of our time helping employers and other purchasers um, and creating, you know, standardization around what they request in the healthcare system so their voices can be louder. Um, and then we also spend some time measuring the healthcare system and tracking how much payment reform there is, what type, um, tracking state laws around price transparency and things like that. And your collaboratives, I assume, are not just purchasers. You have all the stakeholders around the table. No, actually, these are purposefully just purchasers. We bring in other stakeholders to either present to the group or to give us feedback on what we produce. But really what these are are opportunities for employers and other healthcare purchasers to work together around common problems that are keeping them up at night and try to figure out how to address and solve them as meets the needs of the purchaser. So it's not that we want to be exclusive of others. It's just that there's a purpose to this of, of coming together. And we bring in the other stakeholders as we need to, to make sure that what we finally ultimately push into the marketplace is feasible um, and viable. Okay. Uh, and I think what, we'll, what I'll wrap up with, Suzanne, um, because time just flew by, uh, but my last question to you will be, so you talk about evaluation and measurement. Um, what has... CPR accomplished so far? Have you moved the needle in a meaningful and measurable way? And, and if so, give us some examples of um, the kind of metrics that you've achieved. All right. Well, I've been in the job seven years, so <laughs> I am happy to say that there are a couple things that I can show for it. One is that when we got started, as I mentioned, you know, only about one to three percent of payments were tied to performance. And now with our tracking, about 50% of payments are tied to quality in some way. So that's a pretty big accomplishment in that is, all that's huge. years. And of, course, and, of course, CPR is not solely responsible for that, but we have helped harness the voice of the biggest customers other than Medicare to really push for this. So I think we, we can take some credit. And the other area where we've had a lot of impact is around price transparency. Um, some of our early uh, participants, um, uh, employers that were trying to do some innovative benefit designs, found that they couldn't do them because there wasn't an easy way for their employees to get access to price information. And so we made a stink, and we put out a big statement about it. We um, started grading states and the laws that they have in place to ensure citizens have access to price information. We started evaluating the tools that health plans and other vendors were using. We put out specifications for what those tools should be like. And I can, I can safely say today that there's a lot more transparency around price than there used to be. It still could get better, but I think we can point to some success there, too. Well, um, lots of work. Lots of work that you've already done, Suzanne, but one thing I guess that's good for CPR is that there's still lots of work to do going into the future, and um, I'm very excited to have had an opportunity to learn about all the things that you've done and all the things that you've accomplished over the last seven years, and I want to both congratulate you and thank you for the work that you do. Oh, Pat, it's so nice to talk to you again. You were really instrumental in earlier part of my career when we were both working on the Leap Fire group together, and it's always great to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you.